Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In this episode of The Beginner's Guide to the Lord of the Rings, we'll answer these questions. How did Middle-earth have light? What was Melkor's first attack? What are the two trees of Valinor? Why and how are elves and men different? Where did dwarves come from? Who created the eagles and the ents? Welcome. In the Beginner's Guide to the Lord of the Rings podcast, we explore the foundational epic stories from the deep past of Middle-earth. If you enjoyed J.R.R. Tolkien's books, or maybe just Peter Jackson's movies, or perhaps you're excited for the new Lord of the Rings TV series by Amazon Studios, and you want to dive deeper into the rich world of Middle-earth, then listen and subscribe. Mongo Vanyan, fellow wanderers. Today in Middle-earth, December 23. Nothing really exciting happened, but on December 20th, in the year 3019, the hill and bag end, Bilbo and Frodo's home, is restored after the battles in the Shire, which took place in the books, but not in the movies. This tidbit comes from Today in Middle-Earth History Calendar on theonering.net. One of the things I love about Lord of the Rings are the maps. You gotta have a map if you're gonna have an epic fantasy story like J.R.R. Tolkien's. So we're gonna do a quick map check here. We discussed before the creation of Middle-earth through the thought of Iluvatar and the music of the Einar. Now the Valar are preparing the earth for the coming of the children of Iluvatar, even though Melkor, the enemy, seeks to corrupt their work. If none of that makes sense, check out the previous episode. Thus far, a record of time has not been kept, but we are about to enter into the first age of Middle-earth. These stories are from The Silmarillion, a collection of tales written by J.R.R. Tolkien and published by Ballantine Books in 1977. Let's begin. So far, the only light source for Middle-earth that has been created is the stars. The stars are the craft of Varda, also named Elbereth, to whom is given the responsibility of light. For a moment, the Valar, the powers of the world, are enjoying a bit of peace, thanks to a newly come Valar named Tolkas, a mighty warrior who caused Melkor to flee for a time. As seas and lands begin to settle, and Yavanna, that queen of the Valar who creates all plant life, she must have one amazing green thumb, sows the seeds that she had designed. Then the Valar realize that they need a light source greater than the stars, as beautiful as those may be. So Aule, the craftsman, builds two ginormous lamps, and into these lamps Elbereth pours a great light. The Valar place one lamp each on the north and south ends of the earth, so basically the world was lit as it were in a changeless day. That's only possible because the lamps were placed on extremely tall towers that dwarfed even the tallest mountains. Under the light from these lamps, the seeds of the earth take root, at first producing mosses, grasses, and ferns, with plants even more beautiful to come. Then, beasts start to roam the grassy plains. The Valar marvel at their work, especially the new-made green, and were content. 
so content that they decide to have a feast day to celebrate their progress. As part of the festivities, Tolkis, that great laughing warrior, and Nessa, a queen of the Valar, are wed. However, Melkor watched from afar, and received reports from his spies among the Maiar, remember that lesser class of spirits of which Sauron is a member, and his jealousy deepens. In his arrogance, he thinks he's strong, and the more he sees the beauty growing upon the earth in its first spring, the more his hate grows inside himself. Because of their contentment, and the great light of the lamps, the Valar failed to perceive Melkor as he builds for himself a great stronghold, deep in the earth and far from the lights. He names this stronghold Otumno, and from that place poison seeps into the clear waters and beautiful growing things. Because of this rot and poisoning, the Valar figure out that Melkor is back, and though they seek for him, they cannot find his dark and cold hiding place. Then Melkor and his servants come forth suddenly to war, and attack the two lamps. They cast over the great pillars that held the lamps, spilling the fire that was in them, and the light goes out, plunging the world into darkness. The falling of the great pillars causes earthquakes and tumults all over the young earth. In the confusion and the darkness, Melkor escapes back to Otumno. And though the Valar seek to overtake him, the greater part of their strength was needed to calm the earth and hold back the convulsions. In an attempt to save their work, and for fear that somewhere, already, the children of Iluvatar may have come. So the spring of the world had ended. In the wake of destruction, the Valar established a new home in the farthest western reaches of the world. This land they named the land of Amun, and around it they raised a wall of mountains. On the tallest of these mountains, Manwe, the high king of the Valar, set his throne. This mountain is called Tenekatil, and around it the Valar established their new home, which they call Valinor. In Valinor there stood a green hill, on the grass of which Yvanna sat and began to sing a song of power. She sings of all growing things. Nearby, Nienna, the great mourner, waters the hill with her tears. The other Valar gather in a circle near the hill to listen to Yvanna sing. As the song continues, two slender shoots sprout from the hill. These grow and become fair and tall, and begin to blossom with beautiful flowers. These saplings are the two trees of Valinor. Now, Tolkien makes a compelling statement about these two trees, quote, About their fate, all the tales of the Elder Days are woven. This will be important to remember, as nearly all the rest of the tales in the Silmarillion tie back directly to these two trees, and even more in particular, the light that these trees produce. But we'll get to that. The elder of these trees is named Telperion. He has leaves of dark green and shining silver, so that it appears that from his leaves a dew of silver light was ever falling. You have encountered many images of trees inspired by and reminiscent of Telperion. In the court of Minas Tirith stood a white tree, which was a descendant of another great tree created in remembrance of Telperion. Remember that symbol that Aragorn bears on his armor and banner? It's a silver tree, beset with seven silver stars, in memory of Telperion and other great trees in this lineage. The gates of Moria also had silver trees on them, invoking yet again the image of the silver tree of Valinor. The younger of these trees is named Laurelin. Her leaves appear to be young green, with edges of glittering gold, flowers clustered together like yellow flames from which spills a golden rain upon the ground. Now, if you'll indulge a little speculation here, I haven't seen this confirmed anywhere, but when I read the description of Laurelin, the golden tree, I'm reminded of the huge Malorn trees in Lothlorien. Lorien is the place where Aragorn and Frodo meet Galadriel. Because of the golden imagery, the golden trees and leaves, Galadriel's golden hair, etc., I can't help but wonder if there's some connection between the trees of Lothlorien and the golden tree of Valinor. Each tree's light would grow from dim to bright, back to dim, 
during a seven-hour cycle. Yet each tree was offset from the other, so that while one was at its brightest, the other was not. Yet twice a day the lights mingled for an hour in a sort of gentle, soft light. So when Telperion, the elder silver tree, first blossomed, it was called the opening hour, and that is how time began to be counted. Around these trees, Elbereth created wells, in which she stored the silver dews of Telperion and the golden rains from Laurelin into shining lakes that were to all the land of the Valar as wells of water and of light. If you're following closely the news regarding Amazon Studios' Lord of the Rings on Prime, they recently released a picture of a white figure standing outside a white city with two shining trees in the distance. There's some debate, but I think that image is of the two trees of Valinor, and somehow that will factor into the show. I will post the image to the Beginner's Guide to the Lord of the Rings Facebook page. This time became known as the Days of the Bliss of Valinor, and began the count of time, and still the coming of the elves, the firstborn, drew nigh. We're not done yet. If you like this episode, please leave a review and share with your friends. Remember to subscribe if you haven't already. We'll be right back. You can be the hero of your own Marvel Comics adventure. Marvel Strike Force is an extraordinary mobile game, a haven for comic book enthusiasts and gamers alike. Lead your own fellowship of heroes and villains to battle against the forces of darkness that threaten the very fabric of the universe. From the menacing Doctor Doom to the formidable Apocalypse, every battle is a chance to prove your mettle. And right now, Marvel Strike Force is commemorating its six-year anniversary. That means free rewards await those who heed the call and sign up today. With weekly events and bonuses, this anniversary celebration promises a treasure trove of special rewards. Rally your allies, sharpen your blades, and dive into the action of Marvel Strike Force today. Use code MAXPOOL to unlock free new treasures. That's code MAXPOOL, all one word, on the mobile game Marvel Strike Force. Now, back to wandering. I need to back up in time a little bit and bring us back to Iluvatar at the moment after which the Valar, whom we've been discussing, came down to shape the world in preparation for Iluvatar's children. Iluvatar sat in thought for a while on his own in silence. His thoughts were on the creation of his children, the elves and men, and in what ways they would be similar and in what ways different. The elves in the mind of Iluvatar would have the gift of greater beauty and bliss than men, and in some ways the nature of the elves is more like the Valar, even if not as powerful. One of the most significant similarities of the elves with the Valar is that the elves experience immortality, or rather they cannot die of old age or sickness, but only of being slain or wasting in grief, as we shall learn in the next episode. But even then, their spirits go to the halls of Mandos and Valinor, and can return to the living bodies if so decreed by the Valar. But to men, Iluvatar would give gifts that seem strange to the elves, the first being freedom, or we might say the ability to choose their own way in the world. In their hearts would be a desire to seek beyond this world, and they would find no rest in it, and thus be able to shape their lives outside of the confines of the music of the Einar. Because of this, Iluvatar knew that they would stray often, and because of this tendency, the elves often felt that men resembled Melkor most of all. With the gift of freedom came another gift that the elves found strange, the gift of death. Where the souls of men dwell, not even the elves know. But Iluvatar knows that through all the ages of time, even the Valar will begin to envy this gift. The gift of death is what gives meaning to men's lives, because they know their time is short, they often hasten to impact the world and leave their mark. This, I think, is another underlying theme in The Lord of the Rings. The elves seem to grow and pass on with the land, 
whereas the races of men tend to build and leave huge monuments of their greatest achievements. Remember the Argonath? Those huge stone statues that Aragorn has longed to see on the River Anduin after they leave Lothlorien? Stephen Colbert, who is a huge Lord of the Rings fan, has a long, off-the-cuff monologue about this idea. Google it, and you'll find it. While Iluvatar intends for a short life to be a gift to men, Melkor corrupts it. He draws a shadow over death, turning hope into fear. When we talk of the kings of Numenor in the Second Age, you'll see this corruption in action. You may even remember some passages in the books, where the stewards who rule Gondor begin to think more of the dead than of their own children. While Iluvatar is thinking about his children, the elves and men, let's return to Aule, the master craftsman. Aule really looked forward to the coming of the children of Luvatar, so that he could start teaching them all the things that he had learned in regards to crafting and creating. In his excitement, he created the seven fathers of the dwarves. He didn't quite know what form the children of Iluvatar would take, and in response to Melkor's destructive actions, Aule made the dwarves tough, strong, and stubborn. Then he began to teach them the language that he had devised for them. But in that moment, Iluvatar comes to Aule and asks him why he had created the dwarves, and gives an important lesson that living things can only be truly independent when they come from the mind of Luvatar. Aule, in penance and grief, takes up a giant hammer to smash the dwarves, but Luvatar has compassion because of Aule's desire and humility, and gives life to the dwarves. Aule says, May Luvatar bless my work and amend it. Luvatar answers that he will amend Aule's work in no other way than to provide them their own independent life. However, he cannot allow the dwarves to come to the world before the elves, as Luvatar designed. So the dwarves were put to sleep until after the coming of the elves when Iluvatar shall wake them. And he forewarns Aule that strife shall arise between thine and mine, the children of my adoption and the children of my choice. I love this little story because it begins to paint the picture of the sibling rivalry that exists between the elves and dwarves. You remember the cold rivalry that turned to friendship between Legolas and Gimli? Even Legolas's father, Thranduil, turning away aid after Smog the dragon drove the dwarves from their home in the Lonely Mountain. This rivalry is ancient, and will come into play in later stories. An important piece of lore among the dwarves is that they believe that when they die, their spirits are gathered into a special reserved place in the Halls of Mandos, and that the spirits of the Seven Fathers live again among their own race and have the same names. Durin is prominent among these. He became friendly with the elves when he was the Lord of Khazad-dûm, or Moria. After the dwarves are put to sleep, Aule tells his wife, Yavanna, of all that he had done. She notes that Aule is happy for his creation, but in her heart she knows that the dwarves will have little love for the creations that are in her care. She prophesies, Many a tree shall feel the bite of their iron without pity. Aule responds that the children of Luvatar will behave in the same way, since they will have dominion over all things that grow. Yvanna confirms that the children of Luvatar will have dominion with Manwe, the High King of the Valar and Lord of the Winds. She mourns that her creations will ever be under the dominion of others. Manwe asks what she loves most and would reserve from dominion if she could. She holds the trees most dear in her heart, and after pondering this and the music of the Einar that created the world, Manwe grants Yavanna her wish that when the elves awaken, Yavanna can call forth spirits of the Maiar, we may assume, to inhabit some of the trees and there be held in reverence, and their just anger shall be feared. Along with these great moving trees, Manwe will send the eagles, also called the Lords of the West. Yavanna rejoices, saying that her trees will be tall so that the eagles can dwell therein. But Manwe says, In the mountains the eagles shall house, but in the forests shall walk the shepherds of the trees. So the world of Middle-earth was first lit by great lamps, and then by the two trees of Valinor. 
These trees and their light will shape the course of events of the first age of Middle-earth. The nature of elves and men are different, with men receiving the gifts of freedom and death from Iluvatar. Dwarves were created by Aule, which caused some sibling rivalry with the elves, but also inspired Yavanna to create Ents and Manwe to send the eagles. What comes next? The world is ready for the coming of the firstborn. My friends, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know by subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing with your friends. Until tomorrow, remember, not all those who wander are lost. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.